Before we start the show, we just wanted to let you know that we have some new pieces of merch that we wanted to introduce. We have a new t-shirt. It's the Paul Revere shirt. Paul Revere on horseback saying, He gave him the knife. <laughs> it was previously only available at our live dates, but now it's available at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. You're going to want that shirt. It was drawn by Jess Gupta, my friend who told the original story about he gave him the knife. The person who said he gave him the knife originally on our podcast. So it all comes full circle. What else? Well, in honor of finally reaching the episode 25 on our podcast, we're also very happy to introduce our very first pieces of merch for babies. Yes. Babies come with hats, Toby tells us, and therefore we decided to make some baby hats. You can finally have a baby hat. It's a nice gender neutral white hat that says what's next on it. And in addition to the baby hat, we've also got West Wing Weekly onesies and kids' tees. The onesies and the kids' tees answer President Bartlett's question, what's next? They say, I'm what's next. That's right. You can get all of this stuff at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. We're really excited for you to see it. And there's just a two-week window here, folks. So jump on that new merch right away. Go to thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. And now... On to our episode. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Well, every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than just posting your job online and praying for the right people to see it. So if you're hiring, check out ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter revolutionized hiring. Their technology finds great candidates for you. It learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter will blow your mind. And right now... It'll blow your mind for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing. Check it out. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You're listening to the West Wing Weekly. I'm Rishi K. Shirway. And I'm Joshua Molina. And today we're doing a special big block of cheese edition of our podcast. Very exciting. Is this number three? I think that's right. And should I jump right to your favorite part where we pair <laughs> our listener questions with a specific cheese? Do you have one in mind? Um, I do have one in mind. Here's one cheese that I considered but passed on because I myself have never eaten it. But I want to thank Katrina Kirkland for pitching Red Leicester, which I guess is a, a British cheese. Yeah. I've had Red Leicester. Oh, I had it on a sandwich that I bought at a Marks and Spencer's. The first time I ever experienced buying a pre-made sandwich inside a department store where you could also buy like pants and things like that. Okay, well, how, why don't we co-sponsor? Let's pair today's questions with both Red Leicester and Oso Irati. From me, it's a French sheep's milk cheese. I may be mispronouncing it, but c'est la vie. That comes from the Basque region, from Béarn, the Basque region of France on the border there with Spain. It's a delicious, nutty cheese that I think uh, changes flavors a bit if you leave it on your palate for a while. Huh. And it's spelled O-S-S-A-U. Correct. New word. <laughs> dash I-R-A-T-Y. Oh, so I guess it's a hyphenate, not new word. Okay, excellent. Do you have any there? Are you eating some? Can we just pretend you're eating some all Sure, yes. My questions? shirt is off and I'm covered in <laughs> Oso Irati cheese. <laughs> Has that for an image. Coming soon josh's own line of oso erati each one has touched his naked body it's called oso erotique i almost died of oso erati asphyxiation <laughs> that's when you just eat way too much of that cheese and never mind this is the third 
big block of cheese edition that we've done. And we're halfway through the series. <laughs> exactly. And I, I wanted to mention up top, if people don't know, if you can find all of the episodes of the podcast at thewestwingweekly.com slash index, you get to see all of them in a list from oldest to newest. So if there is an episode that you want to jump to, like the last big block of cheese edition, you can go to thewestwingweekly.com slash index, and you'll see that we put that out on December 21st, 2016. And would I be correct in saying that soon the fruits of the incredible crowd-sourced project to transcribe our episodes, the fruits will be born? (laughs) What's what's the saying? Fruits will be... Whatever. The thing will come to fruition and they'll actually be up there soon. (laughs) There's fruit in there somewhere. Not soon. It's already begun. Is episode one accessible right now? Yeah, there are transcripts already up for episodes one and two. And that is thanks, first of all, to innumerable listeners who volunteered their time to transcribe an episode of the show. In fact, we had such response that we had to turn people down. I'm sorry if there's anyone we haven't responded to. We just, we were, we had an embarrassment of riches and more people wanted to transcribe than there were episodes. In fact, all future unrecorded episodes have already been spoken for, I believe. All of them? I believe so. That's crazy. Maybe I'm just making that up. (laughs) But we couldn't do it without Krista and Evie, who have been spearheading the whole thing. And um, they're the ones who are actually getting it up onto the site now. And thanks so much to them. Yeah, deeply, deeply thankful. Okay, let's get to our first question. What do we got? This is a question that we got from a lot of people. It's come to us on Twitter in the past, and we got this emailed from several listeners specifically for this episode. A lot of people have asked a variation on this question. Any chance you can get blank on the podcast? Or why hasn't this person been on the podcast so far? And so I thought we could take a second to address this part of how the show gets made. Actually, even before we do that, let's give our listeners a little preview of how we're starting off season four. Hello, uh, this is Martin Sheen, and I was honored to play Jed Bartlett on The West Wing. And that was really... Really exciting. So let's, we can just talk about that a little bit. Sure. We've been trying to get Martin Sheen, and when I say we, really, you, Josh, have been trying to get Martin Sheen to be on the podcast. All I've done is, you know, text you incessantly to be like, How, did you write to Martin Sheen yet? Did he respond? Did you follow up? True or false? A lot of our interactions go like this. We'll discuss whom we'd like to target for specific episodes, usually weeks and weeks in advance. You're always the one who has a sense, like... If we want to get Martin for the opener of season four, we need to talk to him by September 5th or something like that. And then about a week after that, you'll say, have you heard back from Martin? And I'll usually respond, not yet. And then a few days after that, you'll say, anything yet from Martin? And then on the second or third try, I usually respond, look, I haven't heard from him yet, but in fairness, I haven't reached out to him yet either. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that happens a lot. It does happen. Yeah. But, you know, with Martin Sheen, we tried very hard to get him for two cathedrals. It seemed like it would be the perfect episode to have him on as a guest. And he wrote back to Josh and he said he would love to do it. But it turned out he was shooting Grace and Frankie in the entire sort of window that we had to record that episode. And this is the thing that we end up coming up against often. We're trying to find a good episode to bring people in for usually to really maximize the best discussion we can get from that particular episode. And we have a particular schedule that we have to follow because we're going through the episodes in order. And frankly, the people that we're trying to book 
are very busy. That's what I was going to say. These are highly accomplished people, both in front of and behind the camera. And so it becomes a logistical nightmare trying to get people. Well, I shouldn't say nightmare. It often works out, but it's, uh, it's complicated. I've talked about this before. I don't like to even talk about the possibility of somebody being on our show or really doing anything until like after it's really already been confirmed. We spoke to Martin Sheen a little while ago. We're only mentioning it here now because we actually have the audio of him being able to identify himself (laughs) and to say like, look, we really got him. So, you know, a lot of times people will say, hey, how about getting this person for an episode? And I'm always a little bit torn because, you know, I want to say, of course, yes, that person would be great. Josh has been working on it or I've been doing what I can to try and reach out. And it's not for lack of trying or lack of having the idea. A lot of times it's just, you know, it's hard to book people in Hollywood for anything. Yeah, some people ask and they impute some sort of, uh, they have an idea that there's bad blood there or why won't you have him on? Didn't he get along with the rest of the cast and things like that, which I enjoy. Right. No, in fact, everybody ever involved in the show essentially is a welcome guest. I can think of one person that I will never invite to be part of the podcast and one person only. And if you like, wait till the end of the podcast and see whether you can figure it out. (laughs) One person, I'll tell you who you're not talking about, Anna Devere Smith. That's true. I'll go ahead and tip my hand. We've been trying to get Anna Devere Smith on the podcast for a long time. She is so busy. She travels a lot. She's shooting. She's on like six different TV shows, but we're huge fans of hers and of the character of Nancy McNally. You know, we've been emailing back and forth with, I mean, I went through a whole thing with her as manager, then publicist, and now assistant. And it's just booking is hard. We got a good laugh the other day when somebody on Twitter asked us why we hadn't booked her yet. And Anna Devere Smith herself retweeted it. Right. We were like, come on, you know, we're trying to book you. Now you're just screwing with us. Exactly. She said that she wants to do it. It really is just a lot, a lot of times it's, you know, a matter of logistics. For example, in season four, there are only two episodes in which Nancy McNally appears. I've basically resigned myself to the idea that if we can get Anna Devere Smith, eventually we're going to put her on whatever episode we can get her for. Right. And that will be fine. But this leads us to the next question. This one comes from Liz Trey. Hello, the West Wing Weekly. My name is Liz Trey and I'm from London. My question for you is, has anybody ever said no to appearing? Only one person has explicitly said, no, I will not do your podcast. And we will tell you who that was. Yeah, it was Laura Dern. Hmm. It wasn't Laura Dern herself who said it. It was her representatives said, we're going to pass. Right. Now, was there any... That was it. No no further insight as to why. No. And it was a nice email. You know, I said, we're doing an episode on the U.S. Poet Laureate, and we would love to speak to Laura Dern and blah, blah, blah. Here's how we could do it. And here's some info about our podcast. I got an email back that said, hi, Rishi, we are going to kindly pass. Thank you. Which in its way is spare and economical in language, as you would expect from a Poet Laureate. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't rhyme, but still. Lovely bit of prose. In fact, Tabitha says they could do it in blank verse. There you go. So her manager's blank verse was terse, but it could have been worse. (laughs) Oh, come on. (laughs) She says, I could write in blank verse. Dylan could do it. Let's go to this next question, a question that I'm really excited about. Hey, y'all. My name is Meredith, and I'm from New Orleans. I was wondering, what would the theme songs of each of the main characters be? We already know that CJ's is the jackal, but how about the rest? I had a lot of fun coming up with my answers for this one. Okay, so let's start with Leo. Sure. For Leo, I picked Johnny Cash's I Walk the Line. Ooh, see, I was also thinking country. I was thinking Stand By Your Man. Ah, see, I picked that for Donna. Oh, okay. 
I mean, I get ahead of you. Go ahead. I immediately thought of Johnny Cash for Leo because his voice. And happiness I have known proves that it's right. Yeah, there's a gravel. Gravitas. <laughs> gravel and the gravitas. The gravel toss. You know, there's a toughness there that I think really fits Leo. And then I walk the line. It really is such a perfect metaphor for Leo's relationship with President Bartlett. Good answer. Okay, for Charlie. Sure. I picked Don't Sweat the Technique by Eric B. and Rakim. Don't sweat the technique. I picked this because often we get these little asides about how, you know, when Sam asks him, just how smart are you? And he says, I've got some game. And when asked about, you know, do any women talk to him or, you know, and he says, I do okay. <laughs> He's got these sort of like uh, moments of humble <laughs> assertion of yeah i got this covered yeah he's confident and so i feel like in those moments he's telling people don't sweat the technique i like it it's eric being rakim and you know there's a little rakim easter egg as we discussed with um, ajay naidu his character rakim ali ah very good was named after rakim from eric being rakim because it was originally some other name and he had asked if they could change the name well done also, I mean, it has this sort of jazzy, upright bass that I also think kind of ties in with Dulé's tap dancing background. I was going to say, it sounds like I could see him tap dancing to just that little bit that you played already. Very nice. Excellent. Okay, so, yeah, Donna. Tammy Wynette. Tammy Wynette, Stand By Your Man. I think that one pretty much speaks for itself. Sure. I don't want to reduce Donna to a role of only being there as a supporting figure for Josh. And I got a boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. But when we spoke to Janelle, you know, she told us how she approached the character and Donna's interactions with Josh, even before it had ever been made explicit, with the idea that she was just in love with this man and she was going to do whatever she could to support him. Mm -hmm. I'm not offended by that, but I sure okay. hope some listeners are. <laughs> Who else? Uh, Josh Lyman, Loser by Beck. <laughs> um, I was thinking about how often it feels like Josh Lyman is kind of a stand-in for Aaron himself. Mm -hmm. And maybe I think that Aaron is writing his own point of view for Josh. And so similarly, I went back to an early Aaron Sorkin inspiration, and I picked Baba O'Reilly by The Who. Hmm, very nice. It feels both sort of classic and all-American. And it feels like, some, you know, Josh talked about how he was in a frat. I could imagine him listening to it in a frat and feeling like really cool. As could I. Can we hear the classic opening measures? Yeah. I feel like it's come to represent like a really profound moment in a way that I think Josh would want for himself or think that he deserves. My God, you're good at this. <laughs> what, else, what else you got? Sam. Okay, Sam... So sweet, so eloquent. For him, I picked America by Simon and Garfunkel. Nice. Took me four days to hitchhike from Saginaw. to look for America. There's something so beautiful and optimistic about it. And I really think Paul Simon's voice is a great stand-in for the way that Sam writes. Beautiful. I'm touched. Awesome. And then the lyrics about going off and searching for America. I think that's what Sam's... That's his quest. Yeah, very good. And uh, who's left? Toby and uh, President Bartlett. And I have Abby as well. Oh, sure. Why not? I'll start with Abby. 
this I feel like is a little bit of a gimme. I think really I, I don't take too much uh, pride and originality, but Respect by Aretha Franklin. Nice. She's a badass. She demands she it. Respect. Yeah. Yeah, she commands it. She deserves it. And uh, I could see her loving that song. It's a great number in the Blues Brothers. If you haven't watched it recently, fantastic scene. I haven't watched it recently. I do love that movie. Okay, so for Toby, Toby is from Brooklyn. And I picked a song from Brooklyn that I think really just like represents his spirit. Anti Up by M.O.P. Fantastic. I'm seeing Toby playing basketball in a montage to that and uh, pulling something. (laughs) I would really love if someone would cut together just a series of angry Toby scenes, you know, storming through, yelling at people, cut to ante up. And, you know, MLP's from Brooklyn. Well done. Very well done. Glad I left this question to you. (laughs) It would have been very sad if we were going through my choices. What do you think about for President Bartlett? I don't know, the Notre Dame fighting Irish song. <laughs> Little on the nose. No Gilbert and Sullivan numbers come to mind? I don't know. What's what, Well, you obviously have something, so don't stop torturing me. So for President Bartlett, I felt like there needed to be something classic. So classic, in fact, I went to the world of classical music. Hmm. And also just something powerful and thinking about his legacy and the potential legacy that he might have, something that outlives its maker. And I hope people don't think that this is too cheesy, but I, I really think that it could be right. Ode to Joy. Ode to Joy, a little Beethoven. By Beethoven. Sure. Yeah. It's iconic. It's unmistakable. It's powerful. It's stentorian even. Mm, nice. But with all of that, the heart of it is about joy. So not the clockwork orange version, dystopian view <laughs> of society and sexual depravity. Yes, this is an unironic invocation of Ode to Joy. Do we want to ponder the German lyrics? What are the German lyrics? Freude schöner Gatterfunken? <laughs> but I don't know what that means. Freude schöner Gatterfunken. Joy, beautiful spark of the gods, daughter from Elysium, we enter drunk with fire, heavenly one, thy sanctuary. It works. That was the thing, is like, there is something religious about the... Mm-hmm. Indeed. It's a religious song. I feel like that would be a good thing to incorporate if, if you had to pick one song for him. I mean, and it's also like, when he walks in the first time in episode one, and he says, I am the Lord thy God, could you not imagine just, ba, 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 you know? Absolutely. And hat tip, uh, in addition to Beethoven, to Friedrich Schiller, who wrote the lyrics for Ode to Joy. Originally? It didn't originally have lyrics, right? Well, no. Let's see. Ode to Joy. I'm reading now from Wikipedia, of course, because I've done some deep research. It's an ode written in the summer of 1785 by German poet, playwright, and historian Friedrich Schiller, published the following year in Talia, whatever that is. Ode to Joy is best known for its use by Beethoven in the final fourth movement of his Ninth Symphony, so he composed it to the lyrics. Great. All right. Never mind. I take it back. Thus concludes... The theme song section. Brilliantly and beautifully done. And of course, people will weigh in, I'm sure, with their own ideas. So hopefully we'll spark some interesting conversation on the website. And I'm going to put these songs up in a playlist on Spotify from the West Wing Weekly. Just uh, go to thewestwingweekly.com slash Spotify, and it'll redirect you. That's thewestwingweekly.com slash Spotify. And you'll find both the Cool Sorkin Jams playlist and uh, this West Wing characters theme song playlist. Great. Fantastic. Here's a question that I wanted you to answer, Josh. Okay, uh-oh. Hi, Josh and Rishi. My name is Aaron, and I have a question for you about underwear. My question is, do you wear your regular underwear when you're in a costume for work? Or do they provide everything down to the underwear 
Or is it some other variation of that? Like it's your regular underwear if you're not going to be showing it off. And if you are, then they give you what they want you to wear. I thought this might be pertinent because we just had the scene with Josh and Amy, you know, recently and we killed Yamamoto when they were in their casual Sunday best. And what happens in that? You know, you've got Josh roaming around in t-shirt and boxers. It's a great question. Uh, so yes, certainly when you are seen clearly in your underwear, that underwear is provided to you by the costume department. I mean, they want to have a say in how you appear always. So if you're appearing in your underwear, they'll generally give you a few choices. And if like me, I've appeared in my underwear a fair amount, but if like me, you are modest, I wear, if I'm on camera, I'm wearing 17 pairs of underwear <laughs> just so that I feel safe and tucked in and supported with no risk of anything flopping out. <laughs> to make sure your thunder is sufficiently correct. And then covered. Uh, and then if you're doing a nude scene, a nude nude scene, one is generally offered a little nude kind of banana hammock which is uh, embarrassing to wear on a set of 40 or 50 people. But there you have it. And then if you're super nude, I've done like TV nude, but in movies and stuff, I think there's something smaller still. <laughs> That's just like a banana peel that goes right on. <laughs> but I thankfully, I, and I think I can hear America <laughs> being thankful as well. I've not had to do anything quite that extreme. So yeah, yes, underwear provided when there's any chance of it being seen. Otherwise, you're on your own. <laughs> okay, Aaron, you're welcome for that image. <laughs> All right, Josh, here's a question from Shelley. Who's been your favorite guest star so far? Whew. That is a tough question for a television series like The West Wing. Well, yeah, with such a deep bench. Every episode you've got... Truly, yeah. It's too much to even ponder, so I'm not going to overthink it. Also, I have many friends who have appeared on it, so this is not definitive, but I'm going to say, just in first response to that question, I'm going to say Oliver Platt as Oliver Babish, because I think it's a big character, and he arrives fully formed, and he does that thing which can be sometimes difficult when you're doing Aaron's work, which is to seem like a complete original, speaking in his own way. And it's funny, we talked to him. It's interesting that he actually felt a certain challenge, Oliver said, to having to be word perfect. You know, he, he had that funny story about having rewritten on the plane on the way to his first day of work, kind of rewritten his lines only to discover that he was expected to be word perfect. But <laughs> nonetheless, I think he organically. He's a great instrument for Aaron's work, for Aaron's dialogue, because he's still sort of idiosyncratically Oliver. He doesn't lose himself to the writing. And I just thought he was funny and uh, very memorable in the role. Absolutely. Who's your favorite? I mean, this is really an impossible question, I think, to answer. It is. I guess my first instinct, without overthinking it, on really underthinking it here, is to say Emily Proctor as Ainsley I really wished that character had stuck around and become just a permanent part of the show. And also, I'm probably swayed by just how charming and nice and generous Emily Proctor has been to us, appearing on the podcast twice, and generally just being super cool. Fair enough. She was great in that role. I couldn't imagine anybody else playing that character and having it work as well as she made it work. I think you're correct. It was an indelible performance. Yeah. But, you know, then I'm like, Marley Matlin? Yeah, you know, there are all these people that I kind of think of as regulars that I forget that are in the guest star category. 
I was actually going to ask you when you said Oliver Platt, I was like, oh, does he count? He had so many episodes. I guess you're still a guest star. When do you switch from being a guest star to a regular? That's a funny question because it was posed to me by Kerry Washington. I was in every episode of the first season of Scandal, but I was a guest star or a special guest star, but I was some flavor of guest star. And that was six episodes. That was the first season. Six or seven. I can't remember. I think. Right. But it wasn't a very long season. No, it was brief. And I remember Carrie one day we were working together on a shooting a scene and uh, she just looked at me. She said, what is the difference? What does it mean that we're all regulars and you're a guest star? And I just made the international sign for money, (laughs) rubbing your fingers together. I said, you know how at the end of the episode, you get a lot of money? I get a little. (laughs) And that is the entire difference. So really, that's what it means in the end. I mean, when you become a regular, that represents a greater commitment of money and minimum number of episodes from the production to you. I guess I'm I'm wondering if there's something even between a guest star and regular. There's recurring, right? Yeah, recurring. But I think uh, when you're recurring, your credit is as a guest star. Okay, got it. In other words, you won't be in the credits proper. Right. This one, I mean, the number that you could get into a whole, we could do an hour on credits and what this means and that means. I think we have another question about credits, so we might as well address that now. Hi, guys. My name is Allison, and I am wondering, why does Rob Lowe get top billing in the opening credits and everybody else gets alphabetical order? I get why Martin Sheen is last. Thanks. Yeah, and I think the answer is that in addition to money and size of your trailer and how many episodes you're going to do and all that stuff, one thing that does get negotiated during contract talks is credit. And I always have the same conversation with my agents. I always say, if you can get an extra dollar per episode, I'll take no credit at all. (laughs) Because I don't really care where my name is on the TV show. I don't get that. But uh, these things are fought over and negotiated. And I think it's a reflection of a situation we've discussed before, which is that the original, I think, concept of the show had Rob and Sam maybe as more of the central character rather than one of an ensemble of important characters. So, you know, he was able to negotiate the the star credit, which is that first credit. Then after that, I guess the final credit, you know, there are things with this person and that person. And the final credit is usually also a place of esteem. I remember doing a Broadway show and one of the actors was negotiating about whether his name could be on the poster in a box, which would set it <laughs> off from everybody else. So, you know, it, uh, on one level, oh, I, maybe on every level, this is uh, just silliness, but that's how these things work. After they've stopped giving you any more money, this is one of the things you can argue over. So yeah, everybody was in alphabetical order, but uh, Rob was up front. My favorite one of those uh, final honorifics was always in Gilmore Girls, Edward Herman on the show, his credit was special appearance by. Huh. Was he in it all the time? I mean, he was in the credits. <laughs> you know, he, he wasn't in every episode, but he was in the credits. But his credit <laughs> in the credits was special appearance by in the Martin Sheen position, which is, you know, understandable. He's got, had a very long and storied career, but the wording of it just cracked me up. It, it still cracks me yeah. up. Well, the thing that makes me laugh about the special is that it's just like taking a shot at everyone else. Well, regular guest star, or just a regular appearance by this guy. (laughs) I think it's just the appearance by makes it feel like a cameo. Like he just he just happened happened to be be throwing by. Like, hey, come on, Edward, you want to do a quick scene on (laughs) right? Exactly. Gilmore Girls. Yeah, it's narishkite, as we say in Yiddish. What does that mean? Foolishness. Hmm. Here's a question from Will. He had a bunch of questions, but the one I appreciated most was, "What did y'all think of La La Land?" 
It's a fine question. Do you want to go first? Well, first, let me uh, use this opportunity to plug Song Exploder. Oh, it's a good episode. There's an episode of Song Exploder with the composer Justin Hurwitz breaking down the big set piece for Emma Stone. It was nominated for an Oscar, and um, it's the song Audition that she sings at the end. She captured a feeling, sky with no ceiling, the sunset inside a frame. If you go to Song Exploder, you can find the La La Land episode, and um, I really like how that one turned out. It was yeah, fun. that's a fantastic episode of Song Exploder, and there, there are two ways I enjoy your show. I'm sure I enjoyed it multi-multi-levels, but primarily I'm introduced to new music and then learn about its construction and origin and how it came together in development. Or I'm familiar with the material, the song being exploded and come away with a new appreciation for it. And that's what I did with this particular episode because I had seen La La Land and I did, I, I liked it very much and I thought Emma Stone was terrific, but it was really, really fascinating to hear about that song and how they worked on it and getting it in a single take and that whole uh, process. So here's my thoughts on the movie itself. One, it's a musical, so I think people might think that I would hate it, but I didn't hate it. It starts off with a big musical number, capital M, capital N musical number, and I thought, oh boy, this is going to be rough. But I also didn't know anything about the movie other than it was made by the same team as Whiplash, and I love Whiplash. I really love that movie. It's just fantastic. Your buddy J.K. Simmons is just tremendous in it. It's really dark in parts and really intense. So and then it comes out with this, it starts with this sunny, buoyant, happy musical number with like singing and dancing. And I thought, this is not the movie for me. What have I done? And then um, the way that the story unravels and the whole thing unravels from that point till the end, I thought was really fantastic. But overall, I think that it's an excellent movie that was both overly praised and unfairly and harshly overly criticized. Hmm. Interesting. It's a rare movie that can polarize people so stringently. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, my take, I liked it very much. I thought it was very well done, and visually, it's pretty stunning. And I love that opening number. I was actually, I had the complete opposite thing. It was like, oh, yes, I'm going to love this movie. But I thought that opening number shot on the freeway in LA, I don't know how they even did it. It's remarkable, incredibly long. I don't know if it's all done in one, but there's an incredibly long shot. And it's filled, of course, with incredibly great professional singers and dancers and i thought there was a little bit of a letdown when the rest of the movie features <laughs> not incredibly great song and dance people even though i thought emma stone acquitted herself better at least in the singing than ryan gosling but when i go to a musical i want there's so many great amazing kick-ass singer dancers that in a way i felt like the movie didn't need to we didn't need movie stars to play the two lead roles mm. That said, I did think they were both very good. How do you feel about John Legend being an incredible singer acting in this movie? Oh, I thought he was very good. Okay, you didn't feel the same way if you're like, it's not a general stay-in-your-lane philosophy. No, no, I no, I don't have that at all. I just, look, and I like to do musical stuff, and cer I, certainly I can't, I, you know, so I would be guilty of what I am faintly damning the movie for. If you hear me sing, you go like, oh, why don't they get a singer? <laughs> but you were in an acapella singing group in college. Yes, a group. It's not like you are not <laughs> a singer. No, but, I, but what I mean really is, if you're going to play a romantic lead in a movie musical, I want you to be just like, hot damn hell of a singer dancer actor 
of which there are many out there. And the problem is to open a movie like this, you need huge names. And I, I, I'd like to go to a movie and go like, oh my God, I was blown away rather than like, he was pretty good. Like yeah. I, I expected him to suck and he mildly sucked. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go, folks. The most recent installment in Rishi Ruins the Musical. Oh, it's kind of Joshy Ruins the Musical there. Yeah, I know. Exactly. I had an idea for a logo for Rishi Ruins the Musical, by the way. Really? It would be our faces, your face and my face next to each other, but yours would be laughing and mine would be crying and we would be in the form of dramatic arts masks. Right. Very good. I like it. It's very clever. All right. Good. We'll get right on it. (laughs) (laughs) Can I continue with Will Slack? Because he had a question for me that I also wanted to address. Josh, how do you feel about the encroaching reality of having to repeatedly watch and critique yourself? Granting you the split infinitive, I will answer your question, Will. I am pondering that. We've now, in terms of what you and I have recorded, I think we're four episodes away from my first appearance on the show. And I am looking forward to it with a mix of eagerness and dread. The dread comes from, not because I can't bear to watch myself. For all my joking aside, I think I'm good on the show. <laughs> like, I don't dread seeing the episodes that I'm in, but I feel like the podcast is humming along so well. I wonder how it's going to change our working together when all of a sudden part of the question is like, well, I was in it, or how was Will, or what does Will do? Is, am I going to talk about it in third person? Well, I see, I see <laughs> Will this way. You know, I'm, I'm going to be forced to kind of ponder things that I don't as an actor. Right. I'm very much about, okay, here's the script. Here's what I'm given. My character is the guy who says this. I don't think in terms of any bigger his place in this world and stuff like that. So I'm going to have to look right. at it in a new way, which could be interesting. But I guess I'm also a little bit nervous about what that's going to do to the show. I'm excited for it. Here's a question I found interesting, although I'm not sure I have a great answer to it, but maybe we can tease it out together. Hi, my name is Carmen, and my question is, what have you discovered about the fan base of the show? Did either of you think that the podcast would create such a following? Did you think that this would be part of helping to create another generation of wing nuts? Oh, I'm glad you brought this question up, because it raises one thing that I wanted to discuss generally, which is the term wing nuts. I get that that's, you know, the name for people who like the West Wing. My feelings aside, it's already been established and it's a thing. But I would love it if there were a name for people who listen to the West Wing weekly. Ooh, that's a great idea. Have you pondered such a term yet? I mean, I have pondered it, but I haven't come up with anything good. The only thing I've come up with is tweaklies. Ooh, I like it. But it sounds a little bit like tweakers. That's not bad, although it a little bit sounds like we're on meth. Yeah. Yeah. My original thought was tweakers with three W's, but they're tweaking so badly they don't even know how to spell tweakers. <laughs> they can't take their finger off the w. w button. They just got some, they have some twitches. That's twitch with three W's. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Obviously, you object to the term wingnuts. Why? You just don't like it? I just don't like it. Okay. It's inelegant? I think so. Anyway, so I'd like to put that out to the listenership. It feels a little arrogant to even say, oh, you know, the people who listen to the West Wing Weekly should have a name. We are certainly not the West Wing. But if someone were to feel passionately I think enough, we've earned it. And look, this way, the brilliance also of crowdsourcing a name so we can then merchandise it and sell it back to you. <laughs> that really excites me. I thought you were going to say the brilliance of crowdsourcing a name means that it's self-selecting a group of people who feel passionately enough to want to give themselves a name. Nope. I meant the other thing. Okay. But this is also an interesting question. It's, it's difficult to answer, but I wish we could mine our audience for more information. I think I sort of 
posed the question a few episodes ago. I don't know whether we're creating new fans of the West Wing through our podcast. I mean, my sense is that the overwhelming majority, if not the entirety of our audience, is made up of people who were already fans of the West Wing. So I'm wondering if anybody came to the show through our podcast. That would delight me. One of the really nice things I will say that I completely had not foreseen, I had a slight trepidation, as I think I've shared in the past, about the entire endeavor, because as I've said before, I, I asked Aaron whether it was okay with him. I thought it might even be something where he said, I, you know what, I'd rather you didn't do a podcast about my TV show. So I was happy when he said yes, but it's now turned into the kind of thing where clearly everybody wants to be a part of it. It's part of, I think, you know, I don't want to overstate things, but it's going to be part of the legacy of the show. I feel like this podcast is a piece of the puzzle of the entire picture of the West Wing. And people are realizing that. And so everybody kind of wants to sit down with us and talk to us, which is very exciting and a lot of fun and an aspect of the project that I had not anticipated. Yeah. By the way, I recently got a tweet that you maybe you might have seen from someone who's a Song Exploder listener. Because of Song Exploder, started listening to the West Wing Weekly, which got them into the West Wing for the first time. I, you know, I think I did see that. So there is at least so one. There's person. one. Yeah, I'm delighted. Another story that recently came our way that I was really touched by was this couple that found each other on a dating site because they'd both listed the West Wing Weekly as an interest. That was an awesome note we got on Facebook. Yeah, they've been together for, I think, a year, they said. And that is just, uh, that's really, that warms the cockles of my heart. Nothing like hot cockles. <laughs> Hot cockles. That's a Woody Allen line. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> should we be asked, would we perform the wedding? Would we become ministers of the Universal Life Church and perform? I think you have to turn around ceremony? three times and spit or whatever. Oh, because now because, we jinx them? Yeah. What do I possibly. care? Two strangers. Their relationship doesn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> we just said, well, you're hot cockles in your 17 pairs of underwear. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask, I think we can finish with one more because I think this is an interesting addendum to Will's okay. second question. Hey, this is Patrick from San Diego, California, and I was wondering, what is it like to have people consistently comment and tweet and post about things you said two or three weeks ago when you recorded the podcast? That, to me, has been an interesting aspect of putting out the podcast. So what's your take on that? It depends on the actual comment, of I course. suppose. I thought the question was more about... Um, a temporal one where it's like, oh, we said this thing two or three weeks ago, and now the conversation is happening online about it. And that I like because I already appreciate sort of the slower pace with which we're going through the West Wing. And I feel like I'm absorbing it and picking up things and appreciating it in a way that's new compared to all the other times that I've watched it. You know, I watch it, then we talk about it. Sometimes we'll interview someone. And then when the episode finally comes out, I get to kind of live in the, that episode again. And so the sort of the halo of one particular episode extends over across, you know, two or three weeks of my life. I think that's really nice. I really get to sort of think about the show in a deeper and more long-term way than I, I would have otherwise. Huh, that's very well put. Overall, that's my reaction as well. I guess I thought what Patrick was getting at was, can that be a drag as well? And it certainly can be at times. You know, I, I, prepare for these discussions with you, but I don't over-prepare for them because I want it to be fresh. I, I want to respond to what you have to say rather than simply bring my preconceived notions to the table. So there are times when I say something 
that maybe doesn't reflect a deeply held belief or, you know, a few more minutes of teasing out whatever issue uh, we're discussing or seen in the show, I might have changed my mind on. And then all of a sudden it's set in stone. It goes out there. And then for the next however many months, people will keep writing online. And some people really dig into me for this thing or that I've said. And then sometimes I go back and think, wow, I don't even know how much I even really meant that. Like, calm down. (laughs) So (laughs) I've changed my... I have very thick skin. And so even when people think I'm an idiot, or whatever, which is <laughs> frequently, I can live with it. Although I'm not dying to be widely hated. I now check in. I get a buzz, like you say, from seeing that we started a conversation that now continues in time and other people will continue to spin out whatever discussion we've had and get their take in. And I love, and sometimes I'll just check in. I went back and I looked at the message board for the first episode recently, and there's still people commenting. People continue to listen to the first episode for the first time. When we were first making the podcast, I'd wake up on Wednesday morning and be like, I couldn't wait to see what the response was and why we put this new product down. What are people going to say? And do they like it? They didn't like it. What did they agree with? Disagree? And it it became unmanageable, just untenable to keep up with every single source of input about the show. But I enjoy knowing that it's out there, that we've sort of set something in motion. One thing I wanted to add, too, about, I guess this goes a little bit back to Carmen's question. I, I think all of this is really centered around the passion that lives on for the show, you know, that even our discussion of the show sparks such emotional reactions or such strong responses in either direction. And I have to say, I really, really appreciate that that has been kind of fuel or jet fuel, really, for whims of mine. Specifically, I'm, I'm thinking about the challenge coin. Like the challenge coin is our newest piece of merch. And it was something that I just wanted to make because I thought it would look cool. We had talked about Bartlett's army and then this, you know, very specific and deep nerdy Venn diagram of Harry Potter and and the West Wing and (laughs) stuff like that, you know, which you don't even need to appreciate when you see the coin. But anyway, that's what sort of sparked it. And the fact that I could pitch to you and you're like, yeah, okay. And then we could actually go ahead and put it out in the world and it becomes a real thing. I really appreciate that. I also thought that we could maybe talk a little bit more about the challenge coin because I realized that I'm also bringing some bias of why I'm so interested in them because of an episode of 99% Invisible that I'd heard. Right. Not that long ago, we featured the 99% Invisible episode, 10 Letters to the President, and the reaction was really overwhelmingly positive. People really enjoyed it. And I thought this would be a great time to play this other episode, which is great and very relevant. It's all about challenge coins. Great idea. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll have that episode of 99PI. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace will help you build the site for whatever your idea is. If you've ever had a cool idea for a new website, you can do it with Squarespace. You can showcase your artwork. You can blog. You can publish any content you can come up with. You can sell products and services of all types. We use Squarespace for our own website, thewestwingweekly.com, which by now I'm guessing you've probably seen. If not, you should check it out, thewestwingweekly.com. It's an example of a Squarespace site that was easy to put together and is easy to maintain. Every time we come up with a new idea for the site, it's quickly accomplished. It's true. In fact, I use Squarespace for my own website outside of the West Wing Weekly. It's rishikesh.co. It's my own personal page, and I use Squarespace for that. So check out Squarespace. They help you make it, whatever it is you're trying to make. 
Go to squarespace.com slash westwing for a free trial. And then when you're ready to launch, use the offer code westwing and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Go to squarespace.com slash westwing. And now back to the show. And now we're thrilled to present this episode of 99% Invisible called CoinCheck. Here's Roman Mars, the host of the show. This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. I once went to a small business and tech conference in San Francisco, and among all the people hobnobbing in hoodies or khakis, a man emerged in full military attire. Dark green uniform with ribbons on his chest and tiny pins all perfectly affixed, crew cut whole nine yards. He was a Marine Lieutenant Colonel, and he was by far the most interesting person in the room. I was just glued to him. Anyway, as we parted ways, he handed me this coin-like thing. I mean, it was bigger than a coin. It was about an inch and a half in diameter, ornately decorated with the icon of the lieutenant colonel's unit, and heavier than anything I'd care to keep in my wallet. I felt incredibly honored, but I didn't know what it was or what the hell I was supposed to do with it. I also got a coin-like thing. It was from a tour guide at the Pentagon. I asked him what it was, and he was like, eh, it's just something we do. Producer Avery Truffleman. I told my housemate Ben about my coin, and he was like, oh yeah, I have one of those. It was my grandfather's. Here it is. I woke Ben up before I came to work, so we sound really sleepy. So his coin is from the 101st Airborne. It's got the 101st Airborne insignia, uh, and shows a couple of their the places that they fought. Uh, Vietnam, World War II. Uh, on the back it says Rendezvous with Destiny, which is their motto, their creed, I don't know. Did he ever tell you like about this? I actually never met him. This is the only thing that I have of his. Avery and I figured out that these coins are called challenge coins. And they are coins, but they're not currency. And they're not quite medals. Challenge coins are something different. Everything that I say here today is my own personal opinion and does not necessarily reflect the position of the Marine Corps. Roger that. Carrie Fosher is not in the Marines. She is a cultural anthropologist at Marine Corps University. She's encountered challenge coins many times throughout her career. I would imagine that except for the brand new people coming in, everybody will know that they exist. The degree to which they are used varies a great deal. This can depend on which military branch you serve in and your rank, but it goes further than that. There are so many different uses, so many different kinds of things that the coins can symbolize depending on the context in which you're looking at them or somebody is giving them. Carrie says that one of the meanings of the coins is made apparent in the act of giving or exchanging them. The coins are literal tokens of gratitude, of appreciation or love or sympathy. They are a powerful and tangible form of connection within an institution that is not known for being very touchy-feely. It can be difficult in certain contexts to uh, express emotion, especially if it's across the ranks. And uh, I do think that the coins are used in that way um, as as a physical symbol of, of affection or gratitude. So across ranks, people might be given a coin for a job well done because there are only so many ways to show appreciation within the military. You can't give a person a raise. You can't give them a promotion. At least you can give them that symbolic indicator of our feelings about the work that you're doing. 
But of course, as Avery and I learned, these coins are occasionally given out to civilians. Most of the time, I would give uh, a coin just to say thank you for you know helping me out. That's Chris McGrath. He's a chief petty officer in the Navy. And uh, I collect and trade challenge coins. Chris says he gives coins out to coworkers, old friends, anyone who does him a solid. And for that reason, you end up finding these coins in places where you would not expect to find any connection to the military. You know, like in the hands of wimpy podcasters like us. And the coins are a way to establish relationships outside of the institution. When these coins get sent out, they're a physical reminder of both the fact that the military is there, but perhaps more importantly, that it's not some faceless, monolithic structure sitting in the Pentagon. There are human beings involved, and they are human beings who can develop a professional or personal relationship with somebody outside the military. When I received my coin from the Pentagon tour guide, he just kind of unceremoniously handed it to me. But within the military, when a sailor or a soldier or a pilot or a Marine gives a coin, they don't just hand it over. There's a traditional handshake. Of course there is. You know, the handshake is, is used whenever someone is transferring one of the coins over, and essentially you have the coin you know, sitting in, in the palm of your hand. And then, with the coin in your palm, you firmly grasp the hand of the person you want to give the coin to. And then you flip your, both flip your hands over so it ends up in their hand. Chris has an amazing collection of challenge coins. Some don't look like regular coins at all. I've got one here shaped like a ninja star. I've got another one shaped like a, kind of like a crown. You know, this one is uh, it's shaped like a cougar profile view, but the teeth are open, and you can actually use it as a bottle opener. The bottle opener could actually be quite practical, because in addition to being gifts and heirlooms and tokens of appreciation, challenge coins are used to play a drinking game. And if you're in possession of a coin, you can be in on the game. Jordan Haynes, a veteran of the Air Force, plays like this. If I was at a bar, I would have the coin in my pocket, and if I felt, you know, emboldened, I would pull a coin out of my pocket, and I would, I would throw it down on the bar, or I might tap it. And maybe holler out, coin check! And all his buddies and crew members would take out their coins. We expect them to reply with their coin doing the same thing, so now you've got all this craziness going on because people are slamming their coins down and yelling out, coin check. Coin check! And they go down the line, and each person pulls out their coin. Hopefully what happens is somebody doesn't have their coin. And if they don't have their coin, then boom. The person without their coin buys everyone a drink. But the person who does the coin check is liable for a round of drinks if everybody does have their coin. So starting the coin check is also a gamble. And not all of the branches of the military are into the drinking game. I will say that I have not seen Marines initiate that kind of game. They would certainly participate if somebody from another service did that. But those who play the game are in it to win it. Some have their coins on them, always. That little useless uh, coin pocket you have in your jeans, uh, I've, I've actually found a use for it, and it's for my challenge coin. you got to be on your toes, you know? I mean, if you're in a shower, you know, take your coin with you. If you're out running... Whatever you're doing, you can carry a coin with you. You could be coined right here in the studio. As far as the history of challenge coins, there's sort of an apocryphal story that traces them back to World War I, when an American army officer supposedly had some special coins minted for his men. And then one of those men was captured by French soldiers who mistook him for a German, and then he used his coin to prove that he was an American. So the coins have also always been about identity. 
they do tell a story about how the unit or the organization wants to be perceived. What do they think are the most important things that they can communicate about themselves to an outside audience in a graphic form? And since identity in the military has a lot to do with hierarchy, there is also a hierarchy with challenge coins. As you move up through the ranks, you know, the challenge coins become more essentially valuable because they're harder to get. It's harder to get a chief of naval operations coin. Uh, it's even harder to get a secretary of the Navy coin. It's incredibly hard to get a presidential coin. Yes, the president has a coin. There's a really lovely video of Obama giving his coin to a woman who lost her brother in Afghanistan. And the military isn't the only institution to use challenge coins, although they were the first. Now some police departments make coins and some fire departments. NASA gets coins minted. Sports teams have coins. Jimmy Buffett has a coin. Jimmy Buffett, the singer, yeah. That's Jordan Haynes again. He's the one who told us about the drinking game. A lot of these performers, you know, if they're doing a USO tour, they'll have uh, their coin with them in return to whoever presents them a coin. In addition to being a collector of coins, Jordan is actually in the business of making coins. He's made over three million of them, including Jimmy Buffett's. I am the uh, founder and CEO of CoinForce.com. CoinForce is one of the private mints that designs and manufactures challenge coins. I'm holding a coin that I brought with me to the studio, a diamond-shaped coin that we made for astronaut Lindgren. It's got his name on it, translucent. It's, abs- it's like just super awesome coin. My God, we do awesome work. You don't have to be a president or an astronaut or Jimmy Buffett. You too can have a coin. You can design your own and then just go online and order it. That's basically what the military does. Most of the time, a unit gets together and talks about what they want on their coin and then gathers the money for it themselves. So we're not using taxpayer dollars. It's all by our own, for our own. So we are, we are fundraising internally or we're doing car washes. Because coins are not in the budget, there's no set procedure for making them and no rules, which means the design process is very informal. Nine times out of ten in the Navy, someone takes that sketch and they use clip art and put it into PowerPoint and then send it off to the manufacturer. PowerPoint. Microsoft. PowerPoint. PowerPoint is installed on every government computer, uh, and it's, you know, for us, it's free. And then Jordan at CoinForce, or whoever the manufacturer is, will take that mock-up and finish a final design on real professional-grade software. A design studio does not use PowerPoint to design a challenge coin. Oh, that's a relief. The individual coins take on a whole new meaning when a bunch are displayed together. And a lot of military folks make elaborate displays or even custom furniture to show off their collection. Of course, some displays are much simpler. In Clinton's presidential portrait, he's posing in front of his collection of challenge coins and they're in a simple wooden display. But these coin displays are not like a flashy show of achievement at all. It becomes less a display of look at me and more a display of a lot of long, quiet, hard work over the course of decades. The coins show all the professional and personal relationships established over the course of a career. So if you're in the Army and have coins from the Air Force in your collection, it shows that you've collaborated across military branches, which can be really hard to do. The coins are physical proof of hard-fought relationships. To me, the coins are full of interesting contradiction. They're a combination of gravitas and tradition with levity and joy. Like my friend Ben, if he wanted, could go take that heirloom of his grandfather's time in World War II and Vietnam and go win a beer with it. You might not 
do those two things with the same coin. Some people might, uh, but that's just one of the lovely contradictions that you find all over military life. In a world as regulated and rigorous as that of the United States military, the coins have this fluid quality about them. There are different coin check rules for different branches, the coin's use and popularity varies, the history doesn't have a set telling, the design doesn't have set rules. There is obviously a very regimented, very structured, very rule-bound aspect to the military, but uh, challenge coins and a lot of other things that are routine parts of daily military life mitigate that structure. Challenge coins are a reminder of the human elements of the massive U.S. military. A reminder that some servicemen constantly carry. I've been coin checked at uh, airports, uh, I've been coin checked at trade shows, I've been coin checked everywhere. Now my, now my home's off limits. Don't be like crawling up my balcony at 3 a.m. to do a coin check on me on my property. But you catch me outside of my property, then, you know, game on. There's no way I'm climbing up on that dude's balcony at 3 a.m. Invisible was produced this week by Avery Truffleman with Katie Mingle, Sam Greenspan, and me, Roman Mars. Special thanks to Ben Class for waking up so early. We are a project of 91.7 KALW San Francisco and produced out of the offices of ArcSign, an architecture and interiors firm in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. Okay, that wraps it up for, we're going to wrap up the remaining cheese and place it in the refrigerator (laughs) as the CDC would have you do with leftover food. And when we come back, we'll be joined by Martin Sheen to discuss the first part of the two-part season four opener, 20 Hours in America. Very exciting. I can already tell you, the week after that, we'll be joined by director Christopher Missiano, who directed both parts. So thanks for listening to this episode. We remain, as ever, part of Radiotopia, a curated selection of wonderful story-driven podcasts. Not unlike a wonderful curated selection of fine cheeses. Mm. Cheeses. <laughs> you can find all of the Radiotopia shows at radiotopia.fm. Radiotopia is part of PRX, which is brought to you by the Knight Foundation. You can find us at thewestwingweekly.com, and you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This episode, once again, brought to you by the quirky talents of Zach McNeese and Margaret Miller, and nobody else. And once again, as we head into the fourth season, I just wanted to say... Thanks to all of you. Thanks to most of you. (laughs) Okay, probably more accurate. (laughs) Logan, go f*** yourself. (laughs) Yeah, you you told me he is your favorite listener. That's actually true. Nobody listens to the podcast more promptly and more regularly than Logan, only so that he can race to the website and uh, explain how terrible this episode was and uh, dread the upcoming drop in quality when Josh Molina joins the cast. If people don't know who Logan is, just go to thewestwingweekly.com and look in the comment section. He's, I think, literally in every episode, he has left a comment. He's the best. And it truly, I'm hoping that at the end of this, somehow I wake up at three in the morning in a ambient fantasia and realize that I've been posting as Logan all along. <laughs> oh. And that I have self-esteem <laughs> issues. That would be... It'd be a good movie. I'd watch that. Would it be a good movie? It'd be one of the best movies about podcasts ever made.
It feels like it would be the three, the movie that Donald Kaufman writes in Adaptation. Here's the twist. We find out that, that the killer really suffers from multiple personality disorder, right? See, he's, he's actually really the cop and the girl. All of them are him. Isn't that f***ed up? Oh, yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> okay. Okay. What's next? Radiotopia. From PRX. Big thanks to Adzerk for providing their ad-serving platform to Radiotopia.